This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to do something a little unusual for us, Paul. We are going to be witty, clever, intelligent. Not much chance of any of that. We're going to talk about wine writing. We always talk about wine writing, Rick. I was being ironic. Well, there's not much chance of uh, being gonna be, clever, is yeah, there? Yeah, there goes. Just proof, proof that we will not do that. <laughs> not at all. I am Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And today we're going to talk about wine writing and why it's so often useless to actual wine drinkers. We have listener questions about what to do with expensive wine and about wine descriptions. And as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs, even the ones who are not wine writers. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Brick and Paul, and today we're talking about why descriptions of wine often make absolutely no sense to most people. Ooh, I know the answer to this question, Rick. <laughs> yes, over there, you, Paul Wagner. Yes, well, the problem is the people who are writing the descriptions, the winemakers, are the ones who want to tell us all the hard work that they did to make this wine, and they want to tell us everything they learned at UC Davis that taught them about organic <laughs> chemistry and, 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 and botany and, and, and viticulture, and, and we just want to know, does it taste good? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much it. It's, yeah. it's true. And and unfortunately, then the folks who write about wine uh, get caught up in that. Well, because yeah. most of what they have learned about the wine comes from the guys making it. Yeah. And they love having the discussions. And look, I got to tell you, I am one of those people that we, you know, we go out in the vineyards or on a, a, a media thing and winemakers telling you all about the little intricacies of the whatever they did. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. It is fascinating stuff. It's fascinating. But does that tell you anything about what the wine is going to taste like? No. No. Right. No. So, you know, we, we do this often. We talk about uh, all of these examples of wh- how bad it is in our segment we call Horrible Wine Writing. Um, and the subject has come up recently in a couple of big magazine stories and, and some websites and people talk about it. So we thought we would add our two cents because we are, after all, the most valuable two cents. Well, I think it's fascinating that since we have started doing the show, we have seen four or five different articles come out saying, why is wine writing so bad? I think it's and, completely us. And we have not seen a single article coming out asking why we are so bad. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think that somebody would say, why is wine radio so bad? But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think I think we are, I think we're moving the needle here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. All right. So the problem comes in a couple of forms. Let's describe the problem. And then each of these problems sort of explains what the issues are. So one of the forms is that sort of overstuffed description with flavors you can't identify. Paul, we've got one right here. Right. So black cherry, silver needle tree, crushed... Tea. Tea, sorry. Although that would work too. Crushed raspberries, mountain blueberries, not flatland blueberries, (laughs) but mountain blueberries. Yes. Dark chocolate dust, espresso mousse, excuse me, espresso mousse, wild thimbleberry... (laughs) Not to be confused with the domesticated (laughs) thimbleberry. Clove, baking spice, orange zest, licorice, hints of lavender, violets, hibiscus, and and flowers. (laughs) Because lavender, violets, and hibiscus are apparently not flowers. Tightly woven but polished tannins. So this is one of those dear God ones where it's, you know, <laughs> this is, let's assume that the description from this one, this one came from, um, this is actually came from a critic. 
because we have one from wine marketing companies as well. You know, but right. this one came from a critic, and this yeah. was the. I am going to come up with so many things yes. to do two things. One, I love the way this sounds when I say it out loud. Yes. To Does it mean anything? And to, mm, it's no. to show you how smart I am. Well, and and the the unnecessary modifiers. Yeah. Well, right. And then there's that. Crushed right. raspberry. This is this is a and flaw. And mountain blueberry. Well, Why can't you just say raspberry? Because crushed raspberries <laughs> really do. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to give you a bowl of raspberries. I'm going to give you a bowl of crushed raspberries, and you're going to write me a 50-word description of how those two oh, are oh, different. The, the, the other one of them tastes way more crushed. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, totally. It's just it's, yeah. just, it's so wild distinct. thimbleberry. Yes. Which has, are, does, are there domesticated thimbleberries? I didn't know. I, I, I have don't. never visited a thimbleberry ranch farm yeah. hacienda. I have no idea what thimbleberry tastes like. Yeah. Okay. Uh, clove, baking spices. There, clove is a baking spice. Clove is a baking spice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hints of lavender, violet hibiscus, and flowers. And flowers. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and so this is, but it's that thing. It's the it's the smartest kid in the room. It's the syndrome. more words is better too. Yeah. More words is better. And, as yeah. And you know it is, and so this is one of the things that um, in in a. It is true that, you know, for people who study wine, that you're often really, really dissecting and picking out every flavor and you go back and the secondary and third, you know, yes. but but in terms of communicating what a wine is like. To somebody who, who, who does, doesn't use that analysis to study the wines they want to drink. Yes. When, when, to someone who's walking into a nice restaurant and wants to order a nice bottle of wine for dinner tonight. This is not a very helpful review. It is, it is, it is horrible, and it's, it's just a really bad thing. So, so there's another style, and it's sort of the opposite version. It yes. is the um, – it's, it's just the there's, – there's nothing the nothing to it. Um, it's the generic every cab tastes like this note. You mean the black currant, cassis, blackberry mocha, and a hint of herbal notes with baking spice, good tannins, and a long finish. Yes. How many billions of times have somebody written pretty much that sentence? Cabernet. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So what Tastes like saying, Cabernet. This, okay, that's fine. So here's the. But so, so I'm going to give you a challenge. So, Rick. so if I was no, no. First part. Here's why that would be a good description. If somebody's okay. saying, "What kind of wine is this?" and I go, "Well, I get black currant cassis, black, you know, yeah, maybe this sounds like Cabernet to me. Sounds like right? Cabernet to me. So how if do you describe it? Only for the cassis. So no. Here, here is my challenge for you. You have to write the description of a hundred different Cabernets for a wine magazine. This is the huge part of the problem. This is exactly a huge part of and the problem. And now you have to come up with a hundred different descriptions for wines that are made from the same grape by basically the same winemaking techniques. And you have to explain how each one of them is different. Well, this is this is one of the problems. This is exactly one of the problems is that is, you know, I you— it's really difficult. This is part of the problem is to expect somebody to be able to do that. Right. You know, is can you rank them? I don't know. Can you rank them in acidity levels? Can you rank them in body? Can you rank them in sweetness? Right. Yeah, sure, maybe. Right. Although that's that not as easy as it sounds. No, but it's actually easier and, and to my mind, frankly, more helpful yeah. than hibiscus. A lot. So, <laughs> but, so part of the problem is precisely what we expect to have happen, right. which is that somebody can go in and taste 100 Cabernets and tell me what each of them is like. Right. And there are, there's, there's a couple people that try to do that. Yeah, they, they'll, here, give it a, a, they'll give it a rating you know, at that level. But here, level. here's one that I would love to do sometime. Get the guy who wrote that, that first description. Pull another similar wine. 
Give him his two descriptions. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Give him his two wines. Yeah. And, and, ask, and find them. And ask him if yeah. he can tell which definition goes with which one. Because well, my guess is he's going to tell you, well, clearly since I wrote those definitions, the wines have changed because I'm not getting it. The yeah. truth is it, it, it's fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I want to talk about that in just a little bit more in just a second on that. Um, okay. Uh, there's also— What the, do you want to talk about? I want to talk about another kind of bad description. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, this, uh, by the way, in case anybody has stumbled in on what the heck was going on here, this is you listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are talking about bad wine writing. Well, we're talking about why there's such bad wine writing. Yes. Um, and uh, this one is uh, the marketing department description. Right. And we all know what they say. Yeah. Right? They say, this is utilizing only the best fruit that highlights the most distinctive elements of each particular premium vineyard. We created a handcrafted, multifaceted, word. yet balanced wine that celebrates the vintage place time at our idyllic state. Don't you wish you were me? I, well, it, that makes me like uh, something, I, but I have no I idea. I added what, that last part. How do I, well, <laughs> oh, don't we all, Paul? We all want to be Paul Wagner. No, no, don't we wish we were the owner no, of this I winery? No, I understand. <laughs> I, I, uh, the, so the problem is, in this case, this is every marketing term. And once again, this is, you know, a piece of this is going to show up on the back label of every wine. Of every wine bottle okay. in the world. I got no in problem the world. with that because that's what they're doing. They're, they're right. selling romance. I'm with them. But if I'm somebody in the business, whether it is a winemaker or a winery or a wine writer who's trying right. to have you choose me, choose me, I want to make you know why you were choosing me. And if you are, if you're, especially if you're a wine writer, your job is not, now this was from a marketing department. So, right. but, but your job is to not be generic. Your job is to say, what Something is it about? Different. What is, is it, it big that makes wine? this wine? Is it light? Different. Is it heavy? And in fact, you know? Well, they did say what makes it different because they said they use only the best fruit. Yes. And apparently well, everybody else uses the worst fruit. Yes. That's what most most winemakers do is they, they, they pick, pick it and the say, worst well, fruit. this grape is too good. I'm not using it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and so but there, was a, there was a recent study, by the way. Um, the, uh, it was the uh, – no, I'm sorry. It's not recent, but it's it, very uh, apropos. 2007 in the Journal of Wine Economics. It's a vintage study. A vintage study. It's yes. true. 2007, an excellent so, year. So they gave, they gave a bunch – and then they gave – Gave a whole pile of, of regular amateurs, just regular folk, a two different Bordeaux's, along right. with professional critics' tasting notes. Right. And they asked them to match which one was which. Mm -hmm. And they got exactly random. They, if, they had, if they said, which one's wine A, which one's wine B, just close your eyes and point. They would have gotten it just the same. So they basically they they, could not they used wine experts to do the exercise the I, had, I had identified earlier and said, yeah. Now yeah. go back and try to taste the wines and tell us which one's which. Yes, and uh, uh, yeah, and one one by the way was uh, supposed to have evoked creme de cassis, vanilla, and cherry. Yep. The other was licorice, herb, earth, and leather, which in theory would be different. Yeah. And in fact, I've had both of these wines, the Clos de Marquis and the Chateau Talbot, and I kind of d agree with both of those descriptions. But what they have pointed out here so is most you know people what? don't get it. It's really hard to pick this stuff out. Well, you know, you have talked about. Uh, your class and yes. and how you've gotten them to learn to describe wines, which does two things. One, it shows how, in some ways, useless somebody else's descriptions are right? because everybody's palate and way of thinking That's is right. different. Describe a little bit about that. So I used to teach cla a class on introductory wine tasting, and I would give them two wines, a Chardonnay and a Sauvignon Blanc, and I would tell them, here's how these wines are different. Look at the color, smell the wine, swirl the wine, 
taste the wine. Now, don't you think that the Sauvignon Blanc tastes like this and the Chardonnay tastes like that? Write those two descriptions down. And then I'd say, okay, now are you ready for the test? And I'd have them close their eyes and I'd have their next door neighbor switch the glasses or not, depending, a little game. And then their job was to take those descriptions and try to identify the wines. And I'd get about 75% of the students could do it. Now, 50, it's only two wines, so 50% is random, right, right? right? So 75% isn't exactly lighting the house on fire. Right, right, right. So a few years ago, I started doing this, and I realized, why am I doing this? What I really should be doing is asking them to explain to themselves how this wine is different. So I said, I'm not going to tell you a thing about the wines. I want you to look at them and tell me how the colors are different. Just write it down on a piece of paper. Now I want you to smell them, and I want you to write down whatever description comes into your mind. Your grandmother's attic, Uncle Larry's truck, I don't care what it is. What does that wine smell like to you? And then taste it, and I want you to describe how it tastes. Uncle Larry's truck? Uncle Larry's truck. Dear God. (laughs) (laughs) Then I had the neighbor switch to wines. Or not. All but one of the students got it right. And by the end of that class, I had four Chardonnays set up in front of those students. And out of a group of about 30, 35 students, I had four students who could, four different Chardonnays, consistently go over and identify each one of the wines blind. Even no matter how they were mixed around, they could identify them. That's pretty hard to do for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the difference was I stopped telling them what to think, and I just said, write down what it means to you. And now if we take that back to the wine writing, the problem is what so many people are writing about when they write about wine means nothing to the person who's reading it. Right. And and some of it is just not understanding what their job is, too. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things, and I don't mean this in a, in a horrible way, um, but part of the reason is that they don't. Some of them just don't know any better because they really have not had any professional journalism training. Right. And and by journalism right. training, I don't mean like reporting and, and digging records and, and covering politics. But right. I mean this. Right. You know, having wouldn't wish of, that on anybody. Right. <laughs> dear God, well, see, <laughs> talking about the first twelve years of my career. That's it's why I have no hair, Paul. Uh, but <laughs> excellent. <laughs> it is, but but what what it is that a journalist does? What it is that a communicator? Right, right. This idea of helping yeah. your reader. You know, it's funny when I teach my clients this. One of the things I always say is that what is communicated is not what is said. What is communicated is what is heard. Right. And right. and in fact, you know, when when we do we do a survey every couple of years with my my company, and we survey editors, food editors of major magazines and newspapers. What kind of wine writing would you like to see? And we get two answers over and over and over again, and they don't want anything else. First answer, what are some good wines for the price? Right. Straightforward. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other one is, for the upcoming holiday, what, what do you we, recommend right. to go with Easter ham, right. Thanksgiving turkey, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so part of it is then you get into these things, these lists. And that way you were talking about um, is this you got, you know, we've we've done we've talked about like the seven descriptions of, of Burgundy that were exactly the same. Right. There's another one right. where we've got somebody had 14 Chardonnays and in those 14 Chardonnays, no flavor description was ever repeated. So basically what they said was that Astonishing. These, this was like the top Chardonnays of the year. And right. None of them had, had the same thing. They did, however, have— Did uh, any of them taste like, for example, say, Chardonnay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did like the various apples that showed up. There was cameo apple, <clears throat> baked apple, juicy apple, tart apple, sour apple, 
tart and sour would be close. Fuji apple and crunchy apple. I'm not sure how crunchy tastes. Did, no road apple? <laughs> well, that whole thing was, no, road, this was a road apple. No, because this was the best Chardonnay, yes. so the, the road apples would well, have been in the worst Chardonnay. And so, once again, it's, it's, it's in some ways, it's simply the, the organization and the wine writer forgets that you, you shouldn't try to do something you can't do. Right. You know, and and so just don't do that. Right. You know, if you want to, you you want to say these are my favorites, well, and well, just but, say. But here's the problem. Here's the problem: is you've got the wine writer. They've written the story about what are some good wines for the money. They've written the story of here are the good wines to go with Thanksgiving, and now you're getting asked to write another story, and the wine writer continues to progress through his or her wine education. So two years into it, three years into it, four years into it, they're now studying for their Master of Wine yeah. exam. They now can memorize. They've got of the 342 denominazione de origine in Italy, they know 336 of them. And they're, you know what? The readers are still back there. And right. you know what the readers want? They want to know the what's a stuff. good wine for yep. the money and what goes that with is, turkey. And that goes back to my my notion of training and being a journalist, which is that right. you you never lose sight of, of what you're doing no matter what you know. And that's yep. the difference between – it's really between yep. a good journalist and a good writer, a good author, yep. good communicator and not. Yep. The other problem too, and I, I think this is, this is in their defense, but nonetheless a professional avoids this, is mm. that jargon is contagious. You know, the more you know, it's, it becomes a shortcut. You know, there's the sports jargon. He's a triple-double threat, and he can, he, but he can't catch and shoot from the arc. Okay, if you don't know anything about basketball, you have no right. idea what I just said. Right. And so, but the problem is the people who read a basketball story know about basketball. Right. People read, many people read wine stories precisely because they don't know about well, wine. Well, a lot of people who read about basketball stories just want to know who won. And 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 did LeBron get his? You know, was he the star? Or was somebody else the star? They don't necessarily need the in-depth analysis. Yes. Yeah. And 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 it's absolutely true. You know, they really when I read like I I loved the Golden State Warriors in the past season. Right. I just want to know what Steph Curry did. Well, and, and let me use an exa- analogy I like to use, which is music. You know, when you when you don't make it to the concert. Do you really want an in-depth discussion of counterpoint and harmonic suspension, or do you really just want to know that Taylor Swift put on a good show? Yeah, and you kind of want to know what the energy was like and stuff. Exactly. So, all right, so, so very briefly, let's, you know, what you want out of a tasting note. Now, as we both said, and my first argument is that you can't expect much out of a tasting note. Right. But I'll tell you what I would like, and I would want something about the texture because this is what I always yeah, hear people talking about. This is one thing about. that people, yeah. Is it smooth? Is it is, smooth? Is it big? They want to know, yeah. is it smooth? They want, That's and, right. You know, and I think you can talk about the depth of stuff. If it's appropriate, if there's a lot of fruit, if there's a lot of butter, whatever mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. is, you know, if there's if there's a brightness, we you know, acidity is a difficult concept if to convey. If one thing stands out, Right. That's helpful. If right. nothing stands out, don't get to it. Do not list 47 things in the wine and then say the wine is dominated by these 47. Yes. Yeah, we get that one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then then I want it I want it in context. So tell me what foods it goes with. Is it a Absolutely. is it a good wine for a summer day? Is it a good wine for meatloaf? Right. Is you it know, a summer is it, sipper? Right. Is it a comfort wine? Yeah. I think that's about the best you can do. Right. You can say it's this is a really good example of Napa Valley Cabernet. This right. is a brilliant example of 
uh, Spanish Albarino if you like that wine. Right. At least it gives you a context. Yep. And for somebody who doesn't, at least they know where the ballpark yep. is. All you right. know, I got a great I got a great email the other day from a a guy who owns a wine shop down in the Bay Area. Um, uh, Wimax Wines, and he is a very smart man, but one of the things he wrote to me was, you know, every time a Californian presents a wine to him that doesn't taste good, he says, it's made in the French style. <laughs> <He> says, <laughs> and I always have to explain to them, no, it's actually just made in the bad French style. Yes. There's a difference. Yes. Well, we are made in the all-American style. This is Bottle Talk <laughs> with Rick and Paul, and next up we will take some questions. Stay with us. Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to take some questions. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Uh, we're going to hit a couple questions first. Uh, first comes from Laura Martin in Sacramento. This is wasn't an email to the show. She just asked me this the other day and said we could use it, of course. It's a very common question. She said, someone just gave me an expensive bottle of wine. What should we do with it? Drink it. Okay, yep. next you. question. Next. Well, I just want to say, though, that's a good example of what <laughs> that bad wine writing and communicating does. Yes. You know, is yes. that it— Now she's got to think about it. Now right. she's got to worry about whether she should store it in this place or that place, what kind of food would be appropriate with it, whether or not she should invite somebody over, what kind of glasses she should use, blah, 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 blah. Drink it. Use a glass that doesn't have a hole in the bottom. <laughs> well, yeah. but you do want a glass with a hole on the top. A hole in the top is important. And there yes, you go. and that stays That's up pretty top, much by the nails way. it. Yeah, it is. It just you just don't worry about. It. You get a good bottle of wine, drink it. Drink it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so this one is uh, from Jennifer in Irvine. She says, "I have a friend. Let's call him Ron. His real name is Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I never get the flaws my friend gets when we, he tastes wine. He tries to be nice about it, but he always sounds like he's telling me, like uh, talking to me, like I'm an underdeveloped child." But when I smell wine, it sometimes make me makes me remember places. What's going wow. on here? Is my friend the jerk I starting to think he is? Uh, probably, but I love the fact that when she smells wine, she, she uh, it sometimes makes me remember places. That's so evocative. I mean, yeah, if she could learn to put that into words, now we're talking about a wine writer note that would help really. <laughs> understand yeah. the wine. Yeah, and you know, the thing is though, that is also entirely personal. You know, things like smell and taste don't go to our logic centers right away. They go to our emotional centers. That's right. why, you know, I say like think about suntan lotion just smells like vacation, you know, and yep. and so and and smell first is emotional and so the that is also the problem with, as I was saying earlier, or trying to do too much because what you smell and what I smell and what we think about even if we both smell suntan lotion, I smell it, I think of a different vacation right. than you do. Right. It, well, and the other thing is, you know, the Ron is always looking for flaws in the wine. And, of course, there are people who approach life looking for the flaws and things to try to make it perfect. Yeah. And there are people who look for the joy in life. And yeah. I don't know if Ron looks for flaws in everything he does or maybe he's just showing off about the fact that he took a class once and they Probably. showed him what two or three of these things well, are. Well, th th you know, that is a thing about criticism, you know, wh whether it's professional or, or unprofessional, is that people feel like that means their job is to find mistakes. Right. Thank God we don't have critics looking at us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be a very easy job. Yes, it <laughs> it would be that's true. Well, and you know, I think this, the the other thing though is this, and I, and I I I don't want to discourage 
the sport of trying to pick out flavors in wine. Right. Because it's fun. It is fun. It's a very fun thing to yeah. do. But it's done. It shouldn't be a competition. It should be yeah, something and, where people yeah. are just you know enjoying themselves. Because frankly, I'm like we we I say this all the time because um, I have married far over my head. Um, is my wife has a better, much better natural palate than I do. Uh-huh. I've yeah. been practicing this for years, yep. and I, sometimes I go, Deborah, what do you smell in her? And she'll get stuff. She'll yep. pick out things, yep. and then will make me think about those things, right. and then I'll pick them right. out too. Yep. So fundamentally, it's so don't worry about it. It's but a it's fun not a thing competition. And the other thing is, if somebody picks something out, feel free to say, I don't get that. I yeah. get something else. Right. Right. It is definitely not a competition, just like us. That is it for questions for now. Uh, We will be uncompetitive in the second half of the show. Take lots more questions and have lots more coming. Uh, You're listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. You know what those guys make me think of? There is nothing wrong with them. They make me think of uh, the great. I'm I'm standing in front of the London gates of. I don't know what. Anyway, <laughs> they make me think it's time for our history. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's what, what it is. is. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, I got one because uh, if we're talking about wine writing, one of the guys who should at least enter into the conversation is Frank Pryle. He uh, was a Paris correspondent for the New York Times for many, many years. And because he lived in France, learned about wine and ended up being their wine writer for a number of years as well. Um, to, to my mind, a beautiful wine writer because he almost never wrote tasting notes. They were always stories about what produced the wine and who produced the wine and what was the story of the wine. Um, good stuff. And he has a he has a book, if you like that sort of thing, his book's called Decantations, and it's a pretty good book. Um, but he had this wonderful explanation when, when he was asked about his job. He said, and it's, I'm going to paraphrase him, but the common perception is that a wine writer is somebody who owns a typewriter and is looking around to drink a whole lot of free wine. And he said that is a completely outdated uh, definition because these days all of the wine writers use computers. <laughs> it's true. I like to drink free wine. Um, well, mine, is, mine goes back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, uh, the Western world's original wine snobs. Uh, but even they only used, they weren't picking out flavors. They, they weren't trying to find ancient dates and raisins. <laughs> they, <weren't, laughs> they, they used these broad, sort of imprecise descriptions. Uh, they basically said if a wine was any good or, if it, in the, and, or not. Uh, and we, we've, we've talked often about the high-end Falernian, the, that, yeah, the, the Roman, Roman wine. wine. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's, it, uh, like Horst, for example, wrote about, well, Sabine grape. Um, which, I think Sabine. Sabine grape. Um, yes. Which is he called humblici, the high end Falernian we just talked about was yep. strong and powerful. Uh, Pliny the Elder, the man we bring up so often because he was one of the ancient wine writers. There's no wine known that ranks higher. Uh, he's the guy, by the way, that wrote in, in Vino Veritas. Yes, in Truth There's Wine. In wine, there's, there's, wine, truth. there's truth. Yeah, in wine, there's truth. Excuse me. Yes. Uh, well, actually, in truth, there's wine. I think. Um, in truth, there is wine somewhere. He, he also, uh, as a, uh, and as this is what wine writers w- uh, wrote about back then, that the wines from Pompeii are, quote, productive headaches, which often last so long as the sixth hour of the next day. Okay, so that's that's a long, talk about a long finish. 
Yes. That's a headache. That's a hangover Although, that lasts. Yeah, I'm gonna say if my hangover's gone by six a.m., I'm good. <laughs> See, but that, that's a that's a consumer. Helper. That's a helpful tasting note right there. All right. Uh, well, you're listening to Bottle Talk with uh, Rick and Paul, and we're gonna, we've been talking about why wine writing and tasting notes in particular are so useless. And so, Paul, that brings up one of your old nemeses, the word minerality. Oh uh, yes. There was a there was a story in the New Yorker um, not so long ago that sort of one of those stories about uh, um, uh, the is there a better way to talk about and write about wine? Right. And in that story, it quoted uh, Jordi Ballester as a researcher at the Center for Taste and Feeding Behavior in Dijon, France. I would like to 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 work at the Center for Feeding Behavior. I just, I think I'd just I, like to be fed. Feeding. So is it eating or feeding behavior? It's like <laughs> because frankly, I'd like to be fed too. Um, they asked wine winners and consumers in Chablis what minerality means to them, and they collected these uh, hundreds of answers. Hundreds of answers. Hundreds. Hundreds of different answers. Salty, gunflit, chalky, mineral water. They, what they found was, and this is the quote, we found, never found a consensual definition of minerality. Gee, I've heard somebody say that here a lot. I think I said that once. Yeah, more than once. <laughs> and so, so here's, here are, you know, there's, uh, well, this is the annoying and frustrating part is that, once again, it's sort of the, uh, you know, giving, giving way to the jargon. Right. It's a word that people reach for. Instead of right. using a description, at least use a description or don't right. use it at all. Well, this gets back to my story about cassis, right? Right? I did the uh, wine yes. tasting yes. for a group of consumers who had never tasted cassis. Cassis is black currant liqueur. It's nasty syrup. stuff, by the way. I just want to say eh. you kind of like a, it, but folks, I'm right on this one. <laughs> it is a it is a traditional descriptor of Bordeaux wines. Right. And I was leading a group of consumers who had not had a lot of Bordeaux wines in the past, and I asked them. I told them. You know, help me, give me some suggestions for flavors that you're picking up in this wine. I said, now, the traditional one is cassis, but, of course, that makes no sense at all because nobody in America has ever had cassis, so nobody knows what it is. So I then threw the, op- threw the question open to the audience. I said, so smell the wine, taste the wine. Everybody ready? What do you think this wine tastes like? And all of them chanted in unison. <laughs> Cassis. Right. It was a beautiful thing. Yes. And, of course, it's a perfect example. They have now learned that the correct answer to that question is cassis. They have no idea what, what it, it tastes means. like, yeah. They have no idea why they should say that, but that's the correct answer to the question. Right. Uh, I do have to say I don't like it. I, I, there was a, a time when I was you know, taking some wine classes and ta- ta- passing tests and all that kind of stuff, and I had, to, I had to buy a bottle of cassis and leave it on the counter and continually smelled it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, because this is not this is not a taste and smell that most people have familiarity with. Right. It just doesn't ring right. It's right. not one of those, you know, so just don't use it, you know. Right. But but minerality is exact. another good example of that, especially when it means so many different things. Just, yes. But yes. If, if somebody can say pencil lead, that's something that we smell. Yes. You know, whether you get that in the wine or not. If it smells like a wet stone, we kind of know that. Once again, as we, as we were saying earlier, that you and I might get different versions of that entirely, right. but at least it's something in the ballpark if you feel like you need to go in that exactly. direction. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Uh, all right. Um, there's th- there's another thing, and and this sounds like a bad idea to me, and it and I understand, and I'm going to talk a little bit a little bit in depth of this, but the Guild of Sommeliers, uh, mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. A, a fine group uh, responsible for a lot of good service in the wine world. For, well, and, uh, and training... They have a whole series of levels of training they do 
that not only train people to talk about wine, to serve wine, but they also train people how to how to provide good customer service in a way which is that such a key a lot of yeah. wine organizations don't do yeah and it might be it might be an argument for a certain time another time about uh, you know whether the problem is that the first level tests are, are, are less about that and more about the wine and the further and, you get in the program the, the, more, the more you get so the more you get trained to how to be nice a great example of a little bit of knowledge is dangerous <laughs> um, but they're talking about and I understand this is internal but they're talking about instead of identifying the flavors but identifying the chemical compounds that cause those flavors right esters for example cause raspberry and strawberry like smells you know mm-hmm. or theols which is sort of grapefruit smells um, and the the problem is, I would argue that even though this is only internal, because it is for people to understand. Right. I worry that it is too easy to forget that, and then and bring that sort of thing onto the floor. So you don't want your sommelier coming over and saying, "This is a lovely bit of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Really pick out the pyrazines in this wine." I don't want them to say that. No, I see. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, you you certainly are right. Um, that in terms of talking to the consumer, this wouldn't be appropriate. Although I did, when you told me you wanted to talk about this, I called up uh, a dear friend who is a master sommelier, Tim Gazer. A great the, guy. One of the best people I know. Yes. And he said, no, 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 no. This is not to talk to consumers. But it is an attempt for us to become more accurate in describing what we are describing. And frankly, I think getting away a little bit from the you know, lavender, violets, hibiscus, and flowers school of wine description, and more into the, these are technically what's causing those flavors. Let's be a little more scientific about it and a little less, um, shall we say, stream of consciousness. Well, I am all for that, actually. Um, I, I, I understand that. And, and frankly, you know, I am all in favor. I, really, I think it, more information is always better than less. So, you know, it, but it is a thing where... <laughs> it's hard to explain this show, Rick. <laughs> I'd say we were any good. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, for me, it's just a, it, it poses a puzzle, and, I'm, and I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I'm not sure how great an idea no, it is. No, I understand. You know? And it's the same problem of, you know, you sit down with the winemaker and he tells you quite literally the temperature at which each of the six tanks was fermented in right. order to produce the blend for the Cabernet yeah. Sauvignon. And you think, you know, kind of interesting, kind of happy that you know this stuff, but does this give me anything that I'm going to go forth and talk to a group of consumers on a on a wine cruise or in a wine column, am I going to get into this kind of detail? No, yeah. because frankly, people don't know and they don't care. I mean, yeah. one of the things I've always said is when people open a bottle of wine, what they really want is a vacation. That's true. And they don't see their high school chemistry classroom as being a vacation destination. Oh no, I've I've gone back to mine, and, we, and yeah, it was I, great. Yeah, right? oh, I love love you know me and the beaker hanging out. <laughs> uh, and one last thing though to say, just as we said about picking out flavors is fun. Look, if for and and it is fun for folks who love it. For yeah, but want you to know, know what? the science you know of it. That's be fun. Would be to just invent a series of flavors and start rattling them off and see if anybody <laughs> and, and compounds you. too. That see are, if yes. anybody called you on it or if they just say, "Wow, guy right. really knows his stuff." You yes, know? all that would do would create questions. And by the way, that's what we're about to start answering right now. Now, you were listening Excellent. to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are going to back to uh, some of our questions because we've created more of them. <laughs> or if not, we will soon. Uh, 
If you'd like to ask us a question, uh, we will give you credit for it or not if that is that is what you prefer. <laughs> and frankly, many people do. Just go to rickandpaulwine.com. <laughs> All right, this one came from uh, Colleen in San Marino. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She says, my boyfriend, actually he's kind of my boyfriend, and this isn't helping him, <laughs> was making fun of the Chardonnay and Pinot Noir I like and said they have sugar in them. These aren't dessert wines. There, we're not going to use the wines because we don't want them us. Is that true? If it is, do I care? Okay. And the answer is it's probably true. And my answer is yes, you care, but only because when you walk into a wine shop and you want the to drink the kind of wines you like, you want to be able to say, I like either the names of these wines or I like wines that have a little bit of sweetness to them. Right. Well, that's that's a very good point. All of right. those are good a little reasons. Bit of sweetness. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and here's here's the deal. It what he is saying, he doesn't or he may be saying a number of things but but what how the wine got this way is not that the winery then added sugar back into this wine all the winery did was probably stop the fermentation before the yeast could eat all completely all of the sugar in the wine and remember alcohol is the wine gets made basically yeast eat the sugar one of the byproducts is is, is alcohol. alcohol yeah there's also yeah. heat and see anyway so details. so if they stop the fermentation just before the wine eats all the sugar there's just this tiny little bit of sugar left called in the business residual sugar because it's left over and an awful lot of wines particularly i'm going to estimate wines under 15 dollars a bottle i'm going to estimate that 80 percent of them have a little bit of residual sugar sure. in it even if it's not enough to to taste sweet, it the extra. If you think of it as just it body thickening, yes. makes the wine seem a little smoother, a little right. rounder. Right. So if that's what you like, it's really important that you recognize that because now you know what to ask for. You like rounder, softer, smoother wines, maybe with a little bit of sweetness or fruitiness to them. And now you can walk into any restaurant in the country and get something that you're going to like. Yeah. yeah. And if your boyfriend makes fun of you for well, that, you can make fun of him is... for the underwear he wears. Well, you can always do that. But I was going to say this is the other thing that's important to recognize is that your boyfriend is kind of being a jerk right there. Yeah. and um, Because he is he's, implying. He's that what you like isn't as good as what he likes. That's right. And frankly, and he's also getting sucked into that snobby thing that we were talking about earlier yep. about the only yep. kind of wines to drink are the wines the cool kids uh, write about and drink about. Next and, thing you and, know, he's going to be talking about Cassis and Mineral. Yeah, and then yeah. He's you don't want to be around that end. guy. I say, I say Colleen, uh, move on. <laughs> not with the one, not from the wine, not from, from the, the wine, boyfriend. From the boyfriend, yes. Yeah. You can, you can, you can do better. <laughs> I'm right. sure that you can. You have the good taste to write to us. All right, this one is from Alberto in Moraga. Why are the descriptions for expensive wines always so complicated and flowery? But critics hardly say anything about some of the cheaper ones, except that they'll say something like good fruit and a good value. Don't people want to know about less expensive wines too? Well. A couple things That's here. That's a great it question. Is, yeah, and actually there was uh, – you are – Alberta, you are dead on because uh, when you, I got this question, I do, I do what I always do when I play around. And I found that the American Association of Wine, Econ- uh, um, Economics. Wine Economists – I'll get it up yeah. – at a conference in 2013 showed that exactly the same thing. They, exactly that, that the critics or reviewers used way more expansive language as the price went up. Now, almost, this, almost by the word and the dollar. Right, but this is going to change. Imagine – the imagine the the restaurant menu of 20 years ago you'd walk in and it would say new york strip ribeye pork roast duck then they started at the high end places it was neiman ranch 
well, with Arico Ver grown on a sunny slope on the western side of Mendocino County, blah, 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 blah. And now you go into the Olive Garden, and it's the same. So if, well, and if, here's the other if part. he hangs on long enough... You're going to see inexpensive wines being sold with exactly that same long list of tripe yeah. that we're well, getting at the expensive wines. Yeah, and actually, although I, this probably really won't happen with the expensive wines, is that if you actually now if you go to the menus, it just says it doesn't say it just, just says, says chef surprise. No, it'll it'll, it'll, it'll <laughs> say swordfish, olives, tomato. Right. Doesn't tell you what sauce or if it's cooked, how it's cooked or you know it's now it's like three words. Right. Okay. In fact, we we had the there was a book and there's a guy did a study on this about uh-huh. the, That's you know, right. the more words the lower down the menu. So maybe That's so right. maybe yeah. But the problem see the problem with that though, Alberto, as we were just saying, is that it most of those descriptions won't help you much. Well, and the other problem is how what do you do? I mean, can you see somebody trying to make a living writing about say? Uh, Gallo Hardy Burgundy with notes of crushed raspberries and polished barley. I just, <laughs> I just don't, you know, I just don't Except think. Except I, I mean, all the people want to know is, does it taste good? But you know, it's. I mean, frankly, I, I, I hate. I don't. I don't hate. In fact, I, I, I kind of like that it has good fruit and a good value. You know, it's, absolutely. Uh, you know, but uh, but what the part I dislike is that the wine reviewers do ignore that vast, vast. Field of wine that most people drink, which is right. those inexpensive to semi-expensive wines, the right. five to fifteen to twenty dollars wines. Twenty dollars wine. You know, you yeah. get lots of people who are picking out that and saying these yeah. are the good wines, these are good recommendations. And, and then, but by the not way, many. one of the things that wine writers will say about those wines that absolutely kills sales of those wines: great with pasta. <laughs> right we, now, first we of had all, a study on that. Now, That's first of ago, all, right. First of all, great with pasta. I'm sorry. Pasta? Yes. I, is there a food that has a broader uh, range of You might of as well say great with dinner. Great with dinner. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And then it, apparently consumers, the minute they see pasta next to a wine, run as fast as they can in the other direction. Yeah. I think what they think that it's, that, that means, you know, I, somehow I'd like to go back on that, find that study and see what the reasoning was on that. But I, I'm going to imagine that they're seeing like a, a bottle in a wicker basket. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So something yep. like that. Yes. Yep. All right. We have another one um, from Ed in Dallas, and he says, what do they mean by room temperature? Is there a range mm-hmm. that wine should be served at? And best part of this question is how do they know? Yeah, that's a great question because, first of all, room temperature um, is a phrase that we have borrowed from the British upper class, which is where we get a lot of our stereotypes about wine consumption anyway. And room temperature— this is old British upper old class. Old British upper class. Centuries old. Well, at least 50 to 100 years old. And upper-class British people live in beautiful manor homes that have no heat, and room temperature for them is 60 to 65 degrees, way colder than any house in America except Miami in the summertime when the ACs run in full blast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, right, and so there's, there's actually, you know, there's an easy— there's sort of an easy rule, but there's actually two really easy rules um, about the sort of temperatures of wine. Yes, Rick has his his. his I is do. it the fifteen rule. Yeah, well, it, mine's the ten to fifteen. Ten to, 10 to 15. fifteen rule. Okay, yeah. Which is depending, but it's really uh, ten to fifteen minutes. Uh, a white wine goes out of the refrigerator for ten to fifteen minutes, and it's ready to drink. And it's ready to drink because they're often too cold. Right. You know, usually it's like forty-five ish degree, but your refrigerator is thirty-seven. Right. Your and problem is the minute it comes out of the fridge, it I goes can't in wait. the glass, uh, I just, and then the minute it's yes. in the glass, you can't. Sometimes it's they gone. stick. 
want. my head in the refrigerator and drink it in there. Um, and then with reds, you put it in the fridge for the same 10 to 10 15, to 15 minutes. minutes and yeah. it comes out just the right temperature. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it is so it's slightly different. Some reds slightly cooler than others. But frankly, reds yeah. are that 55-ish range yeah. and yeah. maybe to 55 to 65. Yeah. And so, you know, there's— White's 10 degrees colder. If you really wanted to memorize it, just think of speed limits, 45, 55, 65. Uh-huh. uh-huh. You know, and those are your and whites. And that's how fast you should drive when you're drinking sparkling uh, wine, white wine, or red wine. Do not— <laughs> Do not do that. <laughs> so the question, though, is how do they know? That's a good question. Uh, yeah. It's a really good question. And there have been studies. They have, you know, but the problem is, once again, studying what? Because different people like different things. Yes. And the, the temperature does change the flavor of the wine, absolutely. Yes. And, yeah, so, but the, the, I guess the, the, the really easy answer to this is, it's the temperature. It's a little bit like saying, you know, if you played Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata at 33 and a third RPM, it's going to sound great. Play it at 45. It's not going to sound so good. It's not so much that it's not going to sound great. It's going to sound no. completely different. Cause play, play, play it at 70s, the chipmunks. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right. But it's how Beethoven <laughs> wanted it played. That's so if right. you're drinking the wine right. at 65 degrees, it's pretty much how the winemaker wanted the wine to be served. So at least you're getting what the winemaker figures is the best shot at that wine. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing to know, by the way, about wine temperature, it involves whites. And if you've got a white that's you know, kind of like you, you don't like. The colder you serve it, chill the it to kill it. The less you'll taste it. Chill it to kill it. It'll just yes, taste like cold white wine. We've all learned this with inexpensive beer. Uh, yes, yes, exactly right. You chill it so to you, kill you, it. Yeah. So you know, you get, if that wine, if if you don't like your white, that's that's how you fix it. Um, so yep, 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 yep. yep. Great right. question. Yeah. Um, Great question. And this one comes from Charles Clemens in Roseville. Does color have anything to do with flavor? I got a wine magazine. And I see the guy talking about wines color all the time. What does garnet taste like? Garnet. What does garnet taste like? Are they talking about the mineral? Okay. So first of all, all red wines are garnet. Yes, that's one right? of the uses. If you get taught that in red wine analysis school, basically. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, I, it was funny because I was recently a speaker on a wine cruise with Sunset Magazine, and we were traveling around the Mediterranean. And one of the things we were doing is each night we had dinner, and each night we had a collection of wines that I'd picked that we were going to taste with the dinner. And at one point, one of the tables called me over and said, you know, we're a little concerned. We think the waiter mixed up the two wines, and we're worried that we're, we've got them confused, and we want to know which is which. Well, the fascinating thing to me is they were all sniffing and smelling and sniffing and tasting and smelling and trying to figure out which one was which. And you could just look at the two wines, and one of them was a darker, more sort of blackish, purplish color, and the other one was slightly more ruby reddish color. Mm. Colors do not have flavor. But colors can indicate some things about a wine. Now, most consumers think that the deeper the color, the stronger the wine. That is not true. And, for example, Rick, you and I have yeah. had Pinot Noirs any number of times that are relatively, relatively delicately oh, colored yeah. wine light, with beautiful. great intensity yeah. of flavor. Yeah. Don't pay any attention to the color. The only reason you really pay attention to the color, if it's turning brown, it's old. Yeah. Or if you want to look like a genius at a table at a wine cruise, just look at the table while all of these crews are tasting and just go around the table and say, this is the cab, this is the cab, this is the cab, this is the Merlot, this is the Merlot, this is the Merlot, and they'll think you're a genius. Yeah, the color. And Pinot is the one you can ease most easily uh, yes. you can most easily pick up. So that's, that's why you listen to us. We want to make you a genius. We want to make you a genius, and you, we want to do it 
with the least possible effort from your part. Yes. Well, you are listening to (laughs) Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And uh, before we go, we do have a food and wine pairing for you. And since this is dead middle of October, actually, we're getting to the end there. It is Oktoberfest season. Yes. Sausages. We're drinking chucrut, sauerkraut, sausages. And I'm drinking a great German Riesling, kind of dry. And it's not very alcoholic, and I'm slugging it down like it was beer, and I'm singing the Oktoberfest songs, and I'm a happy man. Yeah, you know, it's true. Actually, it can be less alcohol than some of the beers. You can find Rieslings, those great light Rieslings, at 6%, and Seven, you can get yeah. beers at 9 and 10. Yeah, uh, It's like the other—I'm the other, totally with you. I mean, it's that rule kind of right drink, it, like you always talk about with Italy, from the region and the country. Yep. But here's the other wine that I really like with Oktoberfest sausages is California Zimmendals. Okay. I just like the big, loud spiciness of them. You just like big, big loud in general. Well, I'm a big loud guy. No, actually, I'm a little loud guy, <laughs> which is kind of the problem. But I think I think that those things go well. What they won't be great with is things like the um, the Oktoberfest, the the the, uh, the sauerkraut. That's but why pick I up mentioned the, sausage. the sauerkraut yeah. because it has more acidity. Well, I don't happen to like sauerkraut, so uh, I'm eating mine without the sauerkraut, okay. and You're I'm having it with applesauce. I'm drinking my zin. No, I'm just eating the sausage. <laughs> you know, lots of stuff, but that's about it. Okay, well, uh, we have made some sausage here. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't pretty. That is another. You'll never watch it. It is not. That's right. Uh, that's a bottle talk for today. Uh, this is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Piscini. Thank, Thank you, Matt. Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. If you learned anything today, we hope it's this. If you read Tasty Notes, that's when you'll get your headache. Way worse than drinking too much wine. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.